Hey everyone, Father Yuri here. I'm sending this message out before this episode starts to let you know that unfortunately my mic didn't work for this episode as it didn't work a couple of weeks ago. So my audio quality is a little lower, so please forgive me for that. However, Father Jeffrey, who does the majority of the talking here, is crystal clear. Uh, I hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome to Enacting the Kingdom, a podcast about liturgical worship. My name is Father Yuri Gladio, and I'm an Orthodox Christian priest with a lifelong desire to keep learning. I'm joined by my teacher and friend, Father Jeffrey Reddy. Father Jeffrey holds a doctorate in liturgical theology and is the co-director of the Orthodox School of Theology at the University of Toronto. Every three weeks, Father Jeffrey and I release an hour-long episode regarding an aspect of Orthodox life. However, only patrons get access to the last half hour of our discussion. If you'd like to hear the rest of this conversation, you can head over to pryingpriest.com slash support. But for now, enjoy the first half of this double feature. And we're back for another episode of Enacting the Kingdom, a double feature, Father Jeffrey. Wonderful. So I have to hold some stuff back for part two, right? Yes, exactly. So you have to hold all the good stuff, all the good stories, and all the deep theological insights. Only the patrons get access to that. So the people who aren't patrons don't know that we actually completely contradict ourselves in part two, right? Exactly. Yeah. We set up we set up these arguments and then we just say, eh, no, it's not actually that way. Um, but you'll only know if you're a patron. How does this differ from Gnosticism? <laughs> Well, see, it, <laughs> you have the you have the the revelation to like the regular people, but then you have the elect who get the deeper revelation. Right. So okay. <laughs> it doesn't differ from Gnosticism at all. It's the exact same. Good. Maybe we need to rethink our podcast choices. <laughs> well, today we're talking about open versus closed communion. Um, I thought maybe I'd start with a story. I, I lived with a roommate one time for a year. And I discovered, oh, he was uh, he was um, Eastern Catholic from the Middle East. Um, I, I don't remember in particular which um, which church he was in, but he was uh, he was an Eastern Catholic, kind of like a a nominal Eastern Catholic from uh, a church in the Middle East. He had just moved to Canada, and he we were once talking about communion, and he was just so irate that he went to an Orthodox church one time, and they wouldn't give him communion, just so irate. And, you know, I tried my best to, you know, explain as best I could, but there, you know, there was no getting through there. Um, so yeah, that's one story, but I, I think a lot of Orthodox listeners might maybe sympathize with maybe some of these conversations where people feel really offended, right? That they can't receive in the Orthodox church. It seems that us Orthodox may be putting a judgment on people who are outside of the Orthodox Church. Um, so yeah, today's topic is open versus closed communion. And Father Jeffrey, I thought maybe after those stories, maybe uh, after that story, I could start maybe by explaining a little bit about how I perceived what this meant kind of growing up as a kid in the Orthodox Church. Sure. Does that sound reasonable? Mm-hmm. Well, for me, um, closed communion was, was a point of pride. Um, it was a point of... Um, getting to say that we are right, right? And getting to say that the other people are wrong. Um, we are in the in-group, so we get to receive communion. You're not in the in-group, so you don't get to receive communion. 
Um, I'm, I'm, is that sort of your experience of, of Orthodox people, Father Jeffrey, that that is sort of something that people have in their hearts when it comes to this question? I, I would be very saddened to think that that was, you know, ubiquitous um, and always the case for Orthodox Christians. I think it's something that certainly as a pastor in the church, I'm always on the lookout for uh, in people and make sure that that is, you know, corrected by self-examination and, and so forth, because it really shouldn't, uh, you know, be anything to do with, with things like that. You know, we've, uh, every year we celebrate Sunday of Orthodoxy um, and the triumph of Orthodoxy. And I think it's a real occasion to, to re-examine triumphalism as a thing. And um, so I hope it doesn't mean that the uh, kind of uh, judgment on others or a kind of uh, self-satisfaction or smugness about being orthodox because, uh, you know, I hope we have occasion in the next hour to talk about what communion represents in light of the inauguration of the kingdom of God. And it's certainly not about that sort of level of, of judgment and self-satisfaction. One of the other uh, ways that I grew up thinking about, you know, once I started getting maybe a little bit more nuanced was this idea that us as Orthodox, we only have, I guess, pastoral authority over our own, right? So people who are outside of the bound, the, the determined bounds of the Orthodox Church, even though they might be, um, uh, you know, Christians who follow Jesus Christ and have, have you know, called him Lord uh, and Savior, that, that e even those Christians are still outside of our authority. So it, it's sort of like, a, I guess another way of putting it is, you know, it's a stance of abdication of, or a realization, maybe not an abdication, but a realization that we are not actually in in charge of that person's spiritual health. So how can we offer them medicine when they're not actually part of this community? Uh, I think that's a bit more nuanced than the first point. Is there anything there that you want to pick up on? Yeah, well, I think one of the, you know, things that's implied, you know, by a statement like that, which is, you know, very true. And it goes back to the very early church practice around this is that this moment of communion is a very intimate family affair, right? Um, and, you know, not to trivialize it by any means, but I mean, it's the same kind of process at work when you think of, you know, other things that you do maybe in your, you know, earthly, you know, blood family that you wouldn't invite others to, whether it's intimate family meals or, you know, even within, you know, marriage, there are certain aspects of the marital relationship that others are just not invited to take part in, right? Uh, and it's not that there's a, a sense of judgment or exclusion or indeed, you know, some sort of superiority versus inferiority at play. It's just, it's not the appropriate moment for that kind of open fellowship to be extended. There are other times, you know, we have people in our homes all the time. We invite them into our, our living room. We, you know, entertain them and whatever, but maybe when it comes to, you know, Christmas dinner or Easter dinner or whatever, that that's a in an en famille and in family, you know, exclusive intimate moment. And then of course, you know, within marriage, the bedroom is the place that the husband and wife repair without others present. Um, and that's all normal in human, you know, relations. And so the fact that the church treats this particular moment in its life as a moment of intimates um, is not, you know, uh, 
so so different analogously to to those things that we couldn't possibly understand it by um, by extension, you know. And, and it it shouldn't mean, therefore, that everything in the church and every activity of the church and every you know uh, you know proclamation of of the gospel or teaching or service ministry isn't actually also you know available to to the world and and oriented to the world but there are moments when there's that withdrawal into that moment of of intimacy where uh, you know it's just not appropriate that that others be there and in fact the whole of the structure of our divine liturgy we we've been very conservative in some respects with with the way that the text of the liturgy has evolved and we've retained moments in the liturgy that point precisely to that um increasing intimacy right because in the early church there were people present who were not capacitated to to kind of complete the liturgy right they were either catechumens or they were penitents or you know others who who were prayed over then dismissed sent away so we retain some of that language in the liturgy there's that moment right before the creed where you know the deacon will call for the doors to be locked right we don't do that anymore i mean it's probably contrary to fire regulations and so forth but uh it, it's it's retained there and i think important to remember why it's retained there because it's actually hinting at that increasing intimacy that increasing drawing together now here's the thing if the only thing that we do as a parish or as a you know as a as a church is that one intimate moment and sadly if you look at a lot of orthodox churches it's certainly been the case with you know roman catholic churches and others where the only thing that ever really gets celebrated is a divine liturgy is a mass right then it creates a problem that you wouldn't otherwise have if if you have a whole range of liturgical services, a whole range of ways the gospel is proclaimed or taught, uh, if you do a lot of things together as a church community, and then occasionally you move into that intimate space, it, it's easier to kind of justify that movement, right? If, you know, the, 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 to picture again, that family, if, if they never interacted with the outside world, you know, they were kind of isolated completely from from the world then you might complain about the way that they lived and unfortunately in a lot of times and places the orthodox church has actually um you know orthodox parishes have behaved this way right the only service that's ever put on is a eucharistic service and therefore it looks like what was originally an intimate family close community moment has become the kind of norm and therefore you know other people are not invited. They're not welcome. They're, there's no hospitality extended. And I think that's where some of the pressure has come from. If we were to rediscover all of the range of liturgy of the hour services and the ways of celebrating feasts and the church year, not necessarily always just having Eucharistic services, which is the case in a lot of parishes, then the problem is at least a little bit mitigated, right? By by the fact that people are welcome at a lot of the services. But then again, you're gonna have these moments where you withdraw, where you, you draw together in that intimate space. And I think it's important to retain that as an aspect of, of our worship. Yeah, I think you just picked up on something really important that I have not really thought too much about because this idea of having more private, intimate gatherings is something we're all familiar with, mm -hmm. right? Like it's, we don't even have to think about it, right? Um, our Christmas dinner, our whatever it might be. 
we have these moments that are that are exclusive, right? And, and you and wouldn't we, dream of crashing somebody else's, right? Like I'm not going to just right. land on you, you know, the in the afternoon when you're having your family dinner, whether it's just your your close family or or maybe an extended family thing. I wouldn't dream of of saying how how nasty are you that you're not inviting me, right? Like we mm-hmm. understand that at that level, but we haven't necessarily presented that that this is what the church is doing through these moments because we've made you know, divine liturgy into this public thing somehow, because it's the only, it's usually the only thing that we celebrate in a lot of churches, but also because we've somehow said, this is the way the faith is, is being proclaimed through the divine liturgy. In fact, it should be the last stage of what people are invited to come to, right? Mm -hmm. After a period, and this is what the early church was all about. You, you took years before you were present at those final stages. And it was only after a lot of preparation and a lot of familiarity with the community. And then you were invited into that, that space, but it didn't mean you couldn't be in the wider community or you couldn't be participating in many other ways. It was just, here's the culmination of a thing, of a process of a, of a joining in that intimate, um, you know, family. And, and I think one of the, one of the reasons why maybe let's say the Sunday morning divine liturgy has, you know, why it has sort of opened up, let's put it that way, is because I think we've lost this family understanding of the parish community, of the church community, of of the local gathering, right? The local assembly. Um, But the family, that's the primary, you know, metaphor used by the New Testament when talking about, you know, these these groups, right? Brothers and sisters and, and brethren and and um, well, yeah, yeah just, so I think maybe maybe one thing you know, one of the steps to um, foster in our own communities is to foster an understanding of not just a group of individuals that come together to get something from God and then leave, but a, an actual group of uh, a family that comes together to be educated, to worship together, um, to support each other, uh, and to see ourselves. Not as a fl- not as a flower on the wall of a church, but as you know, a, a brother, a sister, a mother, or a father in that community. Oh, absolutely! And it turns it then from this notion of privilege, right? That you know, we are the we're the ones who are coming and getting this special gift or this you know the special sign of our belonging or or, or sense of of place within the, the the church into responsibility, right? This is the act. Uh, at the heart of a living, breathing family. Okay, well then what does that mean for the way we live between Eucharists, right? What does it mean that we are one another's brothers and sisters? That, you know, how, how can we then come to the chalice and then just go out of that place and remain oblivious to everyone else in that family for the rest of the week? People who may be suffering, people who may be struggling to put food on the table, people who may be, you know, having difficulty with their marriages or, you know, with raising their children or whatever. We, this, I mean, this is where, um, you know, the, the, the really good argument for the closed communion that we have in the Orthodox church, uh, we don't actually implement, <laughs> we, we proclaim it, we state it, we, you know, we even have this theological justification for it, but what we don't do is live it in the way that that theology tells us we we should right so if if it is truly the intimate act of uniting the members of a family together then it's imperative that we live 
that reality at all times, right? And so what does that mean? It means there's probably a limit on the size of parishes. You know, you cannot have a two or 3,000, you know, family church that works that way, right? Uh, it has to be that you know everybody by name. It has to be that you are responsible for everyone else in, in that community, that you are caring for everyone in that community. The, you know, the, traditionally, after about 100, 150 people, there would be a new church started. You know, And uh, this has been retained a little bit better um, outside in the, in the Orthodox diaspora by um, Slavic churches, as opposed to, say, some of the Greek or Antiochian churches that have you know, just become mega churches, right? And, you know, for all kinds of North American efficiency reasons and so forth. But really belies what it's supposed to be, which is a, a family gathering. And, and, you know, traditionally you picture that in a village, you know, with the churches at the heart of it and everybody is working and together during the week and caring for one another and the children are being raised by the whole community. All of this kind of uh, mutual aid and uh, responsibility and interdependence is is built into what it we're supposed to be like as Christians. You don't have to go as far as, you know, Book of Acts sh sharing everything in common necessarily, but there's a good reason that that existed. That is the model, you know, for the way the church is supposed to operate. This, it, it, There is no communion, you know, of just a kind of uh, sacramental act if it is not, in fact, effected in real life. And that's where you know, we could proclaim closed communion until, you know, the end of the age. And if we're not living it, then there has been no point, you know, in, in set of, sort of setting those limits and saying that this is about our gathering together. If there is no us, if there is no body of Christ mm -hmm. that has been formed in that moment. Well, what you're doing right now with this discussion on closed communion is something I've never heard before in an Orthodox context, right? And And that is, you are you are you are taking maybe this closed um, this very finite discussion right this microscopic discussion of closed communion right so a lot of theologians or orthodox people or whatever might look at the topic with a with a magnifying glass and pick out the little tiny kind of differences in theology or whatever but what you're doing is saying whoa 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 the only way that we can actually see how this is supposed to properly function is not to have it in the laboratory underneath our theological microscopes. It's to actually take it and, you know, reintroduce it back into its habitat. And, and the habitat of communion, of receiving the body and blood of Christ, is one of this, you know, this, uh, this kinship group, right? This fictive kinship group um, that, that we have this gathering as a community. And it is actually, um, it's, it's, it, it's tied with the life of the people and of the community. And, and I guess that would reflect a little bit with St. John Chrysostom in, in St. John Chrysostom's liturgy, when he's uh, the, the prayers of the, you know, asking the Holy spirit to come down. He says, let the Holy spirit come down upon um, uh, us and upon these gifts. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, and there's this sense in which, you know, that the community itself is, is, is closed in the sense of, I don't know. Is there anything there, Father Jeffrey? Oh, absolutely. And I, I mean, arguably there is no us unless we live as an us, as a we, right? You'll mm -hmm. notice that throughout that liturgy, it, it's never I, 
except you know in a couple of occasions the priest right before the the great entrance has a, a prayer of preparation you know for the act he's about to to kind of um carry out on behalf of the community but all the prayers are offered as we you know our father is where our lord you know taught us to to pray and so we absolutely have to be you know coming with you know the the notion that we are members of a body right and, and that's not just you know this kind of pretty poetic language that saint paul you know uses you have to think about that one and he even he articulates you know the feet and the hands and heads and so forth and you imagine trying to live as a hand without a body right it, i mean it you don't have to imagine much because no. you know that wouldn't work. But yeah, yeah. we do that, right? And we just sort of think of the we or the us as the collection of individuals, you know, happen to be there. But to, I mean, just to kind of push a little bit more, even at what you're saying there, I mean, the, the, the standard that, you know, the, from the laboratory that you're talking about, the, that we kind of... Um, you know, apply, well, you know, this is for the Orthodox, right? So you haven't qualified to come and to, to, to take part or to be re given this gift of, of the divine Eucharist at an Orthodox divine liturgy, right? So, so there's this separation in the laboratory of those who are Orthodox, those who are non-Orthodox. And we're really, really good at applying those standards to those that we're excluding. In other words, oh, you are missing this part of belief. I think you said something like that a moment ago. You know, you, you're, you, we would need to tweak your your Christology, or or maybe you know, we're not entirely sure you've given up the filioque or whatever that really you know specific theological thing is. So we're, our eyes and our lenses and our filters and our you know standards and judgments are really well trained on those that we are going to exclude. But then it comes to this group, the us, the we that are supposed to have the Holy Spirit descend upon it, you know, during the divine liturgy. And those standards go out the window, right? The 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 filters, you know, turn off. And it's it's if if you've got the you know plastic card in your wallet that says member of the Orthodox Church, that's it. You know, beyond that, there's there's no need to be self-critical. There's no need to to kind of, you know, we talk about repentance and so forth, but we think purely in terms of individual, you know, uh, sins and, and, and frailties that we might have, you know, during the week. But we don't actually think, well, hang on, are we properly believing as Orthodox Christians the, the entirety, you know, of the faith? You know, we have this really, you know, happy theological principle that the non-orthodox are excluded but the orthodox go to communion i don't know if you've ever tried you know uh, quizzing uh people who are in the communion line as to what they actually believe about the trinity or that about the uh, interesting situation the divinity and humanity of jesus christ let's see did jesus have two wills or one will right i bet there would be about a at least 50-50 split on that one. And yet one of them is absolute heresy, condemned by an ecumenical council. The other is orthodox theology. So it's that we, we do it on the basis of, you know, group identity rather than on, well, actually, if we're going to have this intimate moment together, we need to be ensuring that the life of the parish is real. 
that, that we are we genuinely are the body that we speak of, that we genuinely care for each other, that we genuinely are learning, that we're discipling, you know, one another, that that we understand the faith and that it's not just a, you know, you you go through to a few catechetical classes to to get your card and that once that's in your wallet, that job done, right? But that you're continuing to grow and develop spiritually, theologically, and otherwise. So that, you know, it's not a matter of saying these are principles we apply to exclude others, but these are precisely the principles upon which the intimacy of that moment is based, right? And so uh, it's not, I mean, that would be, I think, a, a, a fairer, more equitable, and more um, more true way of implementing closed communion. But we, we've we've literally just taken it and made it into a way of excluding people as opposed to the very purpose for which we exist as a church, which is to say to grow into the new humanity, the new creation of the kingdom that this is supposed to be manifesting. But it's like it, the job ends once you've been initiated into the in-group. You know, you've, you've got your card, you've got your privilege, and then that's it. And so all we can now talk about is who we're going to exclude on the basis of our own privilege. Well, that's what turns this into a nonsense. If, if, we, if instead it was, this is closed in the sense that it's a reflection of the very real spiritual, theological, Christian life of these people who are joined together in this intimate moment. Well, then it's not only going to be something that has purpose and meaning, but it also has, it makes it compelling. Right, so people aren't just wanting to get in because they 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 want to share privilege; they want to get in because they want to be part of the the reality of the inaugurated kingdom of God as expressed in the life of this church, of this body, of this family. We have about five minutes left in the public side of this episode, Father Jeffrey. And before I ask you, or before I we go into the last bit of this public episode, I do want to tease the audience about what we'll talk about in the Patreon side, which is. The, the time, so I used to work at uh, Youth for Christ in Winnipeg. So it was an inner city, uh, well, it was a Protestant missionary, evangelical Protestant missionary organization. And I worked doing job training for teenage boys and stuff like that in the inner city. Um, but my team, there was four of us and, you know, the boss, my, my boss was an amazing person. But, you know, everyone's kind of from that evangelical cloth. And she once asked if... You know, she brought me into her office and said, we're going to have like a team meeting next week. And I'm wondering if you would be willing to lead communion. <laughs> um, so I will tell that story uh, at the, um, uh, in the Patreon side. But to, to take it to the end, Father Jeffrey, here, um, I guess, like, I guess the job, like what can the listeners do in particular, right? So we belong to, ideally, if you're listening to this and you're an Orthodox Christian, you belong to a a parish community. Um, I think COVID makes things a a little tough, but um, in in normal circumstances, you belong to a community. And I guess the feeling, we have this, in in society, we have this very inclusive streak, right? everyone, Everyone to be included in like everything. But then on the other hand, we have our own, like, it, you would feel awkward if you found yourself at somebody else's Christmas dinner, mm-hmm. right? So do is it our job then to sort of foster this sense of, well, we are 
a family, we're welcoming, but then have other people just sort of be like, well, I feel like I'm intruding. Like, have we done our job if guests feel like they're intruding on something private? Yeah, I mean, it's a difficult thing to recover the fullness of what the early church, you know, would have had. Because, I mean, as I said, they had, you know, first of all, there was a period of, of persecution in which this was happening often in secret, right? So the doors, the doors, you know, command was not just a kind of symbolic act, but rather let's make sure that as we move forward into this thing that no one's going to understand, uh, that that genuinely were protected, you know, from the people who might be, you know, out to, to get us or, or whatever. But even, you know, long after that, as long as these dismissals, you know, occurred. And I mean, here is the thing that is, is difficult, but I think important that we recover. And that is that when you get to that moment of communion in the Eucharistic assembly, really the only people who should be present are those who are going to receive. Okay, so this is one of actually the responsibilities that everyone, you know, could follow through on. And that is to say, uh, because, you know, again, with the individualization of, of all of this, it's, it's, it's me and the sacrament or me and God. And I, the us is only because we happen to be doing this in the same, you know, building today at the same service. But if we were to recover the notion that this is the act of the believing community gathered around you know, the, the the table of the Lord as a foretaste of the kingdom. At the moment when this is, is is being shared, everybody who is there is meant, you know, to receive. So in other words, the Orthodox Christian who is kind of tempted sometimes to say, well, I don't feel like it today, or I haven't done enough to prepare, or, you know, I'm, I'm struggling with this, that, that, or the other thing. I mean, you shouldn't be there if if that genuinely was true, right? So there is something to be said for somehow in our communities and certainly in the hearts of every Orthodox Christian recovering the sense that if we are there and present, we are to receive because it's not about, you know, thou, the, the, the individual you. It's about the community and it's about what Jesus is doing in and through his body, which he is forming and by the Holy Spirit descending, you know, on, on that community. And what are you actually saying by opting out, you know, at that stage? Now, that does imply that, you know, there is maybe something that we could move to that that allowed for these kind of successive dismissals you know to take place that first part of the service the liturgy of the word with the the readings and the homily and and so forth could be the kind of more public part of the service but if we can in some way move to saying you know we're going to do something as a community to say um, every orthodox christian is present at the time of communion should be receiving because it's not an individual act it is the whole community being cared for by God in his, you know, kind of covenant family love, you know, for, for everyone. So that's something I think that that, that could be done. I, I would encourage people as they look at those who are going to communion to, to really sense that the intimacy, you know, of that moment, right. That, this is a common cup that's being shared. I mean, this is a, it was always, and it wasn't just like on the ancient Middle East, uh, this was normal, you know, restaurant practice or whatever, you know, you passed around a cup. Uh, no, in the moment when Jesus is doing this with his disciples, it's intimate. It, it's meant to be even dangerous, right? Because 
you know, there's germs and things like that that, that get shared. And, and that's one of the things that people, you know, have kind of misunderstood about this. It, this is genuinely risky behavior. And why are we acting in this way? It's because we have this deep bond and this sense of, of, of communion and intimacy, you know, one with another. If that's the case, how should we be, you know, behaving and feeling towards all the members of the community? So as you see people line up and receive communion, you know, pray for them and, and say, well, what am I going to do about this relationship now that this is being forged anew in this sacrament? You know, what are, maybe this week I'm going to have to reach out to that person. I haven't spoken to them for a while, or I know they were going through a rough time. Make sure that everything's all right. Maybe I could offer to 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 babysit the kids, or maybe I could offer to kind of come come and help or clean up a, somebody's house. Or so that person has been shut in for a while. Maybe they need some some assistance. But look at each and every person and say, I care. You know that would be one way of of actually expressing what the purpose of this closed, intimate family moment is, is all about. You've just finished listening to another public episode of Enacting the Kingdom. If you're getting value from this podcast and you'd like to support the show, you can head over to pryingpriest.com to become a patron. Also, five-star ratings with written reviews go a long way to getting the word out there about this show. Also, since Enacting the Kingdom is social media free, any word of mouth recommendations you can make to your friends and family would be greatly appreciated. We'll see you next time.